Today we move on in our series to some more of the things that love is not. We've already learned that love is not envious. And now flowing from that, we learn that love is not proud or boastful. Craig Groeschel, in his 2015 book, Hashtag Struggles, makes this cultural observation. As of October 2013, on various forms of social media, people posted over 41 million pictures that included the hashtag selfie somewhere in the caption. Selfie hashtag has since grown to more than 200% in usage since 2013. So it's no exaggeration to say that we have become a selfie-absorbed society. Oh, oh, yeah, you know, and what can I say? You know, we get into selfies, hey, I include other people occasionally, you know. Okay. I, you know, and even other people. You know any of those people? <laughs> um, this is my favorite, though. Sorry, dear. That's my favorite, so. <laughs> um, you know, as cute as they can be and as innocent as they can be, there's also some damaging side effects to this selfiness that we've gotten into. Plastic surgeons, Grocer says, in the United States have seen a surge in demand for procedures ranging from eyelid lifts to rhinoplasty, nose jobs, from patients seeking to improve their selfies on social media. A poll by the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery of its 2,700 members showed that one in three had seen an increase in requests for procedures due to patients being more aware of their image on social media. A plastic surgeon from Manhattan said, they come in with their iPhones and they show me pictures. Selfies are just getting crazy. <laughs> Well, back in Paul's day, they didn't have selfies, but they did have a related problem, prideful boasting. We come to this passage today, as Don gave us a little heads up when he did the scripture reading, toward the end of a lengthy defense by Paul of his ministry against these super apostles that we read about in chapter 11, verse, 15, verse 5 who have been boastfully lifting themselves up to the church by demeaning Paul, by putting him down. They saw Paul as competition, and therefore they tried to put him down as much as possible. Paul's defense begins in chapter 10 and runs all the way to the end of chapter 12. This passage is, I think, one of the most impassioned appeals of Paul to any of the churches. And he goes to absurd lengths to make his point. His point is that all this boasting is absurd. If you're going to be that absurd, I'll be absurd myself. And I'll boast as well. Of course, what does Paul have that they don't have? Well, he has the real deal. He's telling the truth. It is believed by most scholars that Paul in chapter 10, verse 1, is actually quoting these critics 
These detractors, these super apostles who were trying to put him down. He writes there, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away from you. Later in chapter 11, verse 5, he notes that he's not a trained speaker. I think that's another barb thrown at him by his critics. Because they had been trained in the classical rhetorical methods of the Greeks. But Paul, oh, he was just a Jew. Didn't have that same training. Paul's already made it clear what is most important. Back in chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, when he writes, But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. You'd have thought that all of this was dealt with back in the first letter. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we just quoted together at the beginning of the worship service? He taught so clearly, love is not boastful or proud. But no, the roots of envy... Remember last week? The roots of envy were so deep that the individuals wanting status and power have ignored Paul's preaching and gone on to boast and be proud. To a certain extent, I think Paul expected this. But what hurt Paul most of all was that the church seems to be buying in, hook, line, and sinker, into this line that these super apostles are giving you see, pride is not a victimless offense. It hurts many who are innocent as they seek to elevate themselves. This is especially true when leaders are infected with selfish pride. According to the National Geographic website, pufferfish can inflate into a ball shaped to evade predators. They're also known as blowfish. They're clumsy swimmers, uh, and they fill their elastic stomachs with lots of water or huge amounts of air, and then they blow themselves up to several times their normal size. But these guys aren't just cute. Most pufferfish contain a toxin, a substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. A toxin that is also deadly to humans. 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. There is enough pufferfish in one, enough talk poison in one pufferfish to kill 30 adult human beings, and there is no known antidote. Like pufferfish, human beings can blow themselves up with pride and arrogance and make themselves look bigger than they really are. And this pride can become toxic. It can become toxic to a marriage. It can become toxic to a church, a friendship, a community. No wonder the late Bible scholar John Stott once said, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Peter wrote something similar when he said, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. But this maxim of John Stott and this passage and teaching of Peter's is not always easy to follow, especially in a culture like ours. 
ours that is celebrity-driven and narcissistic, self-seeking. From politicians to actors to athletes to us common folk who put up selfies. <laughs> um, boasting has become pretty commonplace nowadays. Do you know that there are even people who are famous for nothing else than that they are famous? Kind of a weird thing. They don't do anything. They don't act. They don't produce anything. They're just famous because they're famous. Interesting world we live in today. We are surrounded. We are inundated by it, by this see me, see me culture that we live in. How can Christians remain in the world to do the work that the Lord has laid out for us to do, while at the same time resist taking our identity from the world? How can we be in the world, but not of the world? Let me offer two reflections about how I think we can do this and how we can be helped in doing this. First, we need to remember that we are sojourners in this world. That means that we are just traveling through. We have no permanent residence. In Hebrews 11, the writer drills home this point that living your life by faith in Jesus Christ means that you cannot put down spiritually permanent roots in this world. Listen to the writer's conclusion. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Folks, when we put eternal importance upon temporary things, we will find ourselves trapped by envy and prone to prideful boasting. Because it's all about the here and now and not about what we have to gain. In my bulletin article, I note that we are caught up in what many people call a culture war. And sadly, too many have employed the tactics of the world in their struggle for Christian values. When we do this, we work against the purposes of God. I may preserve one law that protects my rights to religious freedom, but in the process use tactics that turn off legions of the lost to faith in Christ. Now you may disagree with me, but I believe I stand with God on this one. I'd rather be offended than cause offense, especially if that means hurting the faith of others. And before you go and say, oh, Roger's gone soft, let me say that I am fine with a vigorous defense of the gospel given once for all, as long as we do it with Christ-conditioned love. I am all for standing up to and for all injustices, from abortion to the exploitation of minors, to the abuses of power, to the exploitation of workers, to incivility, to sexual predation. I could go on and on. But I believe that I stand with God in outrage 
for what we have condoned while claiming to be a Christian nation. All of it. Not just a narrow litmus test that avoids my personal sins. You know how you make those lists? These are all the things that are bad in the world. You leave out those things that you do that aren't exactly good either. Makes us look better. It's part of that prideful boasting that we're all subject to. Now the reason I can avoid this, the reason I can be not boastful, is because I don't view the world as my home. This is the way we can do it. This country is not my eternal dwelling place. It is a mission field. It is the place that I have been sent by God as his ambassador. An ambassador not for the United States of America, an ambassador for the kingdom of God that has come into this world through Jesus Christ. You know, the Roman Empire was once said to be eternal. It was always going to stand. Where's Rome today? It's gone. There was one time when the sun never set on the British Empire. Guess what? It sets on that empire today. And one day the United States of America will no longer exist. But God's kingdom will. This is temporary. The kingdom of God is eternal. In our zeal to stand up for what is right, let's not forget the difference between the two. Following that, we need to remember that we are in a spiritual war. And knowing the difference between a physical conflict and a spiritual war is very important. It's vital to our Christian witness. It changes the weapons that we are authorized to use. And by weapons, I'm not talking about physically destructive weapons. That's a completely different sermon. In a spiritual war, our weapons change because our enemy is different. We are not fighting a battle against flesh and blood. The angry atheist is not our enemy. The demonic forces in the spiritual realm, Satan himself, is the enemy. To attack someone personally for being anti-God or anti-religion is like blaming someone for getting the flu. Now, the flu can be deadly, can it? To our physical bodies. And that's why we treat it. That's why we take it seriously. Shouldn't we also treat sin? Sin is a spiritual illness whose curse is, whose cure, excuse me, is found only in Jesus Christ and only by the means and methods that he authorizes. He is, after all, what? The great physician. So let's remember our Lord's example in all of this. When he was spat upon, he didn't spit back. When he was called names and taunted, he did not reciprocate. When he was struck, he didn't strike back. So let's keep our tactics and our weapons consistent with the warfare that we are engaged in and with the example our Savior set. And by all means, let us remember to wear the armor that God has supplied us. Go to Ephesians 6 and look at that. 
It's wonderful. We don't need to augment God's armory with our weapons. We have the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Our feet are shod with the gospel of peace. In addition, we hold the shield of faith to deflect Satan's darts. And we hold in our hand the spiritual sword of God to press the attack. And on our head, we wear the helmet of salvation. A helmet that we are given that identifies us as part of the Lord's army. And a lot of times in Big Fish, we'll sing, I'm in the Lord's army. Remember that one? I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. But you know, we sometimes forget what it means to be in the army. What's the old saying? There's the right way, there's the wrong way, and there's the army way. Okay. Which does a soldier choose if he or she wants to please their commander? It is not up to us to tell God how to command and wage spiritual war. He's done that already. But don't we do that? Don't we try to tell God how to do things? You know, in reality, the legalism that Jesus opposed in the religious system of his day was one big mutiny against God's command. They added to and worked around God's commands to please and lift themselves up. And we do the same when we try to set the agenda for God based upon our own standards and not his. I see this in the criteria the world puts forward for entrance into heaven. Rather than relying on the grace of God, so many rely on works. I've been a good person. I've done good works. Folks, that is legalism. That is works salvation. And what a contrast there is between legalism and what the Apostle Paul is teaching. Legalism brags about what it accomplishes and demands that it be given a reward based upon those works. Paul, though, though he had good reason to boast, chooses instead to boast about his weaknesses. The only overt boasting he would do was about what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, one of the snares that I believe Christians face when they enter into the world of politics, and I believe we need more Christians in politics, but one of the snares that they face is the need to lift oneself up. It just seems like today everybody's bragging about their accomplishments, about their resume, about their personal life. Christ calls on us to rely not on our efforts, but upon God alone. God is our champion. We don't need to champion our own cause. He will champion us. He will lift us up in his own due time if we will humble ourselves. So with this understanding firmly in place that we as Christians, whatever capacity we find ourselves in, whatever capacity we're serving God in, when we understand that he is our champion, well, then we can better understand our role in this eternal struggle in which we are part. We don't need to promote ourselves. Instead, we need to lift up our Savior. Lift him up. 
Because he is our source. He's the source of our power. Paul puts it like this. Whoops. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that the power of, so that Christ's power rests on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, and in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christians, let's remember our true status in this world. We are sojourners. We are just a passing through. Our true citizenship is in God's kingdom. And as we serve our king as both diplomats, ambassadors, and soldiers, we need to keep this in mind. This cause that we have entered calls for different tactics and different weapons, each conditioned by the love of God. That love that he showed when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross for our sins. A selfless love that demands nothing less than the same from each of us who claim the name. By ourselves, this is impossible. We can't be perfect. That's the downfall of legalism, is trying to be perfect ourselves. But if we accept the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we can do it. Because then we will be transformed, not all at once, but daily, into his image. What was impossible for us will become possible because it is not I, but it is Christ who lives in me. Accepting that grace begins when we surrender to him as our Lord and Master. It grows as we confess our faith in him as God's son. And it is entered into when we die to ourselves, are buried with him and then raised with him again to eternal life. This is what baptism symbolizes. We are strong because we have died to sin and we live for Christ. The command is clear. And if we humbly obey that command, then God, our champion, will lift us up. He will establish our way. He will give us the victory. Why don't you claim that victory today as we stand?